0: Welcome, folks, uh, to another podcast here. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you all with us. Uh, and today we're about to have a conversation with Catherine Schulz, who is a New Yorker staff writer. I've been reading her work for years, and I really admire her work. She won a Pulitzer Prize in 2016 for feature writing and National Magazine Award for the really big one, a story about the seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest. And she's the author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error and more, and we'll be linking some of her other work in The New Yorker, which I just found amazing, her Pauline Murray piece and more. But the piece that grabbed my attention this week, uh, as the other week as I was reading my issue with The New Yorker, was a piece called The Lost Giant of American Literature. As I began reading it, it discovered that this was about William Kelly, a lost author in many ways, who was one of the most amazing writers, I think, in America, and she discovered him in a very unusual way, and Katherine Schulz, welcome. Good to have you with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So let's talk about your wandering into the Eastern Shore and what you discovered
1: and how you stumbled across William Kelly. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's fun to talk about it, because it was truly, you know, the, the greatest find in my life to date and, and probably ever, uh, especially if, like me, you're a, you know, a, a book nerd, not merely sort <laughs> of, you know, naturally but professionally. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what happened? I, I live over here on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. It's quite a rural area. And it's so rural, we actually don't have internet in our home. Uh, and so when, when we have a real you know, need for, for, for time on the Google, <laughs> we <laughs> amble on over to our local public library. We gone over to the public library. It was a Saturday, kind of in the beginning of last summer. And we spent the day there working, and uh, when we got ready to leave, I was starving and just kind of desperately wanted to get home. But as we were driving home, and it's just a couple miles, but as we were driving home, these kind of mysterious red arrows cropped up <laughs> along the side of the road, <laughs> uh, which had definitely not been there on our way in that morning. So someone in the interim had come along and staked this entire line of arrows, and uh, my my partner, uh, who's also a reporter, is just professionally and otherwise unbelievably curious, and uh, you know, even had had it entailed driving into the apocalypse, she would have followed the arrows. So I'm, like, <laughs> pleading for lunch back home, and she says, no, 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 we got to go follow these arrows. So we follow the arrows, I don't know, a couple miles down these winding roads, and we wind up at just the world's most canonical junk shop, this place that turns out to be open for literally 10 hours a month, five hours, two Saturdays a month, only in the summer, so we've never, you know, seen or heard of it. You wouldn't notice it to drive right past it. It's a completely nondescript on the outside. On the inside, it is packed to the gills with every kind of, you know, ancient, rusty piece of farming equipment and fishing gear you could ever possibly imagine, uh, which is, you know, fun and all, and I stare at it for a while, but I am, um, there's, there's a limit to my uh, knowledge about or interest in ancient farming equipment. So <laughs> uh, at some point, I, I, I wander over. There's exactly one bookshelf in the place, kind of narrow, rickety bookshelf over near the cash register, and I wander over to it. And uh, literally, the, the first thing I put my hand on uh, was this very thin, like a little narrow, kind of unusually shaped book, much longer than it was tall. And it caught my eye for whatever reason. And I pulled it out, and it turned out to be this absolutely beautiful hardback edition of a Langston Hughes book that I actually didn't know. It's a, it's a lovely little book called Ask Your Mama, it's a collection of kind of jazz. Poetry almost set to jazz. Mm -hmm. And I open it up, and there on the first page, in that unmistakable gorgeous penmanship, (laughs) is this note that says, To William Kelly, on your first visit to my apartment, welcome, Langston Hughes, February 19th, 1962. And I will tell you... (laughs) That I almost dropped it. I mean, it was the most astonishing thing to pick up. He has such, I don't know if, if you've ever seen his handwriting or his letters oh, yes. or anything, but he's, yes. it's just its just flowing and gorgeous and yes. unmistakable. And there, there was something about just suddenly just, it, it's the closest I can imagine to an actual time machine. You know, I'm standing in this place that's sort of dedicated to old stuff anyway, you know, things that have kind of washed up on the banks of history, and and to open this book and just suddenly, it's a very alive handwriting. I know that sounds strange, but but you could almost, it's like the pen had just finished making its little scratching noise on the page, and it was just totally astonishing. Um, So, of course, I like you know, beckon my partner over and point frantically at the (laughs) page, and she has a sort of similar heart attack, and uh, and then... um, you know, we we go up to the cash register and very demurely, without saying a word, um, spend one dollar and acquire this book and and take it home in a state of you know just absolute astonishment. And our first line of speculation was, how on earth did this book wind up in this like you know out in out of out in the middle of nowhere, junk shop on the eastern shore of Maryland. You know, obviously Langston Hughes lived in Harlem his whole life. Many of his papers have and possessions have, you know, very uh, very official homes. Uh, how did this one little piece kind of wash up the style into this place? And then after we started speculating about that, I, I had the kind of obvious curiosity, which is well who is William Kelly? You know who did he sign this book over to? So that uh, that was this sort of incredible adventure that that launched this piece. I got very interested in learning about the life and work of William Kelly, and in a really wonderful fashion. You know, you find a book like that, and you feel like the you feel like the incredible thing is this is Langston uses. He didn't just write it; he held it, he inscribed it, and then at some point, what became incredible was. This was William Kelly this this was handed over to him and he was this remarkable man and this remarkable intellect living living a truly remarkable life so it was a it was a find all the way around I not only found the book but I ultimately found the the author and the works uh, that, that to, to whom it was dedicated
0: I, you know it, it, when I soon as I saw that in the article I, I, I as I told you before we started I read that book when it first came out when I was a teenager um, a different drummer by by William Kelly. Uh, and one of the things I was wondered was what happened to him Mm. after that book. I never found another book by him. You know, there's tons of Baldwin, tons of Hughes, tons of everybody, but I never found another book by Kelly, um, or what happened to him. So, I mean, and so you, you had never heard of William Kelly before this. And so this world opened up to you.
1: Yes. And, and as I said, that was, that was really a delight. Um, it's a very interesting question. What happened to William Kelly? So, you know, right? He wasn't Baldwin, who you know wrote and wrote and wrote and has endured, and we still read him and talk about him all the time today, very deservedly so, obviously. But he also wasn't Ralph Ellison, who wrote one incredible book, mm-hmm. you know, sort of Harper Lee style, you know, huge. Everyone's read it. It makes an incredible splash. Everyone still reads it, and yet, nothing else. After that, right. So, so William Kelly was neither of those. William Kelly actually wrote his entire life, and what's what's strange and and was very interesting to me is the way that that work has sort of just you know lapsed away from the mainstream. Uh, he wrote few, so you read A Different Grammar, right? When it came out, it came out in 1962. He was 24 years old, very very young, um, very accomplished. It's a it's a really as you know it's a, it's quite an astonishing novel. Really, and then he proceeded to write four more books in the next eight years, so Prolific Gentlemen, um, and all of those were published to varying uh, varying kinds of critical response, but, but all of them published, all of them found audiences and started conversations, and the last of them, which is very challenging and very interesting, uh, the book called Dunford Travels Everywhere, uh, which is now out of print, and Uh, Almost impossible to find except through the library, unless you have around $1,000 you're willing to drop on a first edition. And then after (laughs) 1970, William Kelly wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. He was very dedicated. Uh, He regarded uh, writing very seriously and regarded it as his calling. And he did it basically every day for the next 40-some years of his life. Um, wait, I understate, actually, 1970, yeah, 47 years, if just died last year. And he was never published again, aside from a smattering of short stories and essays here and there, literally probably under a half dozen. So he, he was kind of, um, you know, he had this, this burst of, of wild creativity that was welcomed into the world and then, you know, never flagged, according to his family, never even... Had a crisis of faith in himself or anything, but was simply kind of sidelined in in the publishing world.
0: So one of the I want to come back to the family in a moment because I found the that you found his family, his daughter, his wife. Um, I'm going to talk about that in a moment because that was really kind of interesting. I want to explore that in some depth here. But the, the the talk about his writing for a moment because I mean that's what's so different about him. I mean, you, you you write in your piece, many white readers didn't want a black writer telling them what they thought, especially when so much of it was withering, while many black readers, long starved for literary representation, didn't want to read about more white characters. And, of course, he wrote in 1962 when all these explosive things were going on. Um, and he was very much a man of his time, but also wrapped up in the world of, of jazz and the, kind of that scene in New York as well, in Europe. So to to talk a bit about his writing, and why it stood out to you, and why it should stand out, and why it should stand out to us right now, even though many of us never heard of him before.
1: Sure. Uh, so you know, his writing is—it's—it's uh, it's it's an interesting challenge as a critic to capture what it is that William Kelly is doing on the page, because it is, in fact, uh, wildly variable. The trajectory of, of his career on the page is very interesting. Um, It's thematically consistent in many ways. His intellect and his humor are very consistent. But the books themselves, um, despite actually describing a self-contained universe and containing a very overlapping set of characters, are actually quite different book-to-book. Different Drummer, which is the one people are most likely to have read, is... um, It's very much a conventional novel in many ways. Um, It's not exactly realist, but it's not, um, it it doesn't deviate dramatically from the conventions of realism or or from, you know, any kind of straightforward narrative novel you might pick up then or today. Uh, The the, the gist of the story of A Different Drummer is that um, a young man who is the sort of um, current generation of a family that was brought over, they're, they're descended from a slave brought over in the 1840s, um, Is has just bought a piece of land from a family that was descended from a Confederate general is all set in this imaginary state in the Deep South. Uh, so it's, it's sort of the entangled tale of a, of the descendants of the family of this Confederate general who still live on the land and of the descendants of a slave that was owned by that family. Uh, also still living on that land, although for the first time in this current generation, uh, the the young man at the heart of the story, a man named Tucker Caliban, has purchased that land. Um, And um, and the the book essentially opens with that man having purchased the land and farmed it for a few years, salting his fields, burning down his house, killing his horse and cow, and taking his, his pregnant wife and his young child and just literally walking out of the state. Um, whereupon the entire African-American population of this imaginary southern state is them. They just leave. There's a mass exodus. Uh, literally every black person in the state leaves. Uh, it's it's truly a remarkable book. I don't know if you can summon how you felt when you read it at 16, but you know, as a critic, I obviously read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of new fiction. I read a lot of old fiction. And it's incredibly rare to pick up a book and... You know, I laughed through a lot of that book, both because it is genuinely very funny. He has a wonderful comic sensibility, but also because the the way that you laugh at the pleasure of an absolutely audacious idea beautifully executed. it's it's the it's the kind of pleasurable laughter of recognizing just genuine talent. And you know at the at the risk of sounding scathing, there are a lot of of very, very good books published every single year. and there are. A, tiny number of truly excellent books, books that you read and you think, oh, my gosh, this this person knows what they're doing and they're incredibly good at it and they're going to keep doing it. And it's a really exciting feeling as a reader. So, you know, Kelly, when you ask me to describe him as a writer, he is so assured. I think is the prominent thing, I, the predominant thing I would say about him. He, he knows exactly what he's doing, which is a very welcome feeling for the most part. As a reader, you feel you can kind of trust the writer and relax into prose, because they never give you a reason to doubt them. And that's really, really fun in his early works. And then at some point, Kelly is so assured that he starts doing things that are actually very daring and very difficult for readers. He starts very challenging uh, linguistic experiments. His his last book is essentially uh, a, a kind of homage to Finnegan's Wake. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Joyce. I find Finnegan's Wake, you know borderline unreadable and not pleasant. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the chief thing I can say about William Kelly's version is that it is considerably shorter, uh, which is a real merit when, when, when you're struggling through that kind of prose. So, you know, again, it, it's tricky to kind of capture him in a, in a sort of single assessment because truly the books over the course of that decade in which he published those five books, they change considerably. But again, what never changes is this, the sense of a real writer behind the page, someone who knows what they're doing, and no force on earth, including the combined disapproval of the publishing industry, is going to deter him from doing exactly what he wants to do.
0: And he had this way. I mean, the, I have not read his other <laughs> books yet. I read Different Drummer. I, I read the piece that you referred to uh, in your in the in the work, his the the um, New York Times piece he wrote about beatnik language actually being black language. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he just has this way of telling white people, this is who you are, without bludgeoning people.
1: Yes, it's a very interesting thing. So one of the things that really captured my imagination and my interest uh, in reading William Kelly, you know, he and here's where where biography and, and literature entangle a little bit. William Kelly, he wrote somewhere in one of his essays that I'm going to mangle the quote slightly, but essentially he said, you know, I know white people, I know poor white people, I know rich white people, I know white people. Uh, And and he had some serious claims of saying that. Uh, He grew up in a poor white neighborhood of the Bronx, in a a predominantly Italian-American neighborhood of the Bronx, Um, had a great group of street friends there who, uh, you know, he reconnected with very late in life and become became, once again, some of the, the closest friends of his, of his uh, very last years. Uh, he went to the Fieldston School from kindergarten through 12th grade, which at the time was nearly all white. Uh, he went from there to Harvard. That's in probably 58 or 59, so again, a time when he was, a, a, you know, in a tiny minority of African-American students there. Um, and then you know lived a lot of his adult life as early adult life as an expatriate in Europe uh before settling in Jamaica and then finally coming back to uh to Harlem so he spent a lot of his really all of his formative years uh as as one of you know the only or or a very few black people in a kind of huge sea of white people and his books make incredibly good use of that experience and they are, they're not exclusively about white people. There There's some really wonderful African-American characters in them, you know, throughout the short stories, and uh, uh, his second novel, A Drop of Patience, is about a blind African-American jazz musician, uh, and, and that's an instance where the, where the, you know, the actual protagonist of the book is a black character, but, you know, by and large, he wrote a tremendous amount about white people. Um, although A Different Drummer is the story of incredible, an, an incredible act of agency on the part of a black person, this, this young farmer, Tucker Caliban, who leaves the state, it is exclusively told from a point of view of white people. We never hear a word directly from Caliban or from almost any other black character in the book. And that is a really classic William Kelly move. He is often standing in the perspective. Kind of standing in the shoes of white people looking at black people, and it's—I find it fascinating and very smart. Uh, it is—it is, in fact, often very scathing. I think it is probably inextricable from uh, his sort of gradually declining popular reception, uh, and and then ultimately kind of you know sidelining in the publishing world. But uh, but as a reader, as a contemporary reader, I find it. Uh, really, really smart and really
0: fascinating to read. Yeah, I, I, there's a couple things that popped in my head here before we move to a different piece of this. is it, uh, I was thinking about, as I read your piece, uh, the last time I read A Different Drummer was 1976, I think. Mm-hmm. And I read it then because I was directing. I, was, I had a drama program in a prison. And I was directing Day of Absence by Douglas Turner Ward. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of A Different Drummer. And so That's I had my few copies. I had two dog-eared <clears throat> copies of a different drummer and, 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 and hand them around to the guys in the joint uh, to read as we were preparing for Day of Absence because it made me think of each other. It made me think whether Ward I maybe read a different drummer as he was thinking about writing his play. Um, mm. You know, because it was about when all the black folks leave mm-hmm. <laughs> and what sure. people are, are stuck to, not, not knowing what to do. Um, so, so I thought about that, but I also thought that um, there's a piece in here you wrote that really says something about, about, about Kelly as a writer um, and he, that he wrote uh, early on, blessed with an ear for variations of spoken English, I realized I lived in four linguistic worlds and you bring them out to us as standard English, the Italian-American English he grew up with in the Bronx, uh, the slightly Yiddish English you he heard at, at, at Fieldstone, and Black English. And he kept all these in his head and was able to write them very honestly.
1: Yes, I think this is where one of the things, um, I mean, again, I, I found everything about this writer fascinating, but, but one of the things that was so interesting to me, I really regretted not meeting him. I just barely missed him. I found this book in, I think, June of last year, and he died in February, and I, there are some recorded um there there there's there's some records of him talking. I listened to a wonderful interview of his with Gordon Lish. I got very interested to to hear his voice and hear how he expressed himself in the world because it's very clear to me both on the page and in reading his sort of autobiographical notes that he was kind of polysymphonic. I mean, just someone who really could channel a lot of different ways of using language and was drawn to the Layering and the alternating of them. He was very, very influenced by jazz music. Uh, he, you know, had made uh, a kind of good circle of friends, including the the, the avant garde saxophonist Marion Brown, when he was living in Europe, and was all his life part of this ongoing conversation about the relationship between language and sound. And, you know, you hear that in the rhythm of his sentences and in the alternation of of, you know, speech and silence and different kinds of dialogue. But you also really do hear his, his he's just got a canny ear for how people actually talk. And one of the pleasures of this book, I found it most pronounced in his third novel, which is called Them, which is, again, uh, very much about a white character, kind of, you know, incredibly dislikable Sort of middle class white anti hero type, uh, named Mitchell Pierce. I mean, he's just like a despicable guy. He married (laughs) a despicable woman. They're just, you know, they're real pieces of work. But it's really fun. At some point, you know, for convoluted reasons, poor Mitchell Pierce winds up very, very over his head in Harlem trying to track down a black character. And the sort of language, the, the awkwardness of the whole experience. This kind of chasm between black and white life in America is so wonderfully rendered as as just absolutely clashing ways of speaking, and it's really fun to kind of listen to these to these dialogues and these exchanges happening. And uh, he was he was just very good at it. He, I think uh, I think he accurately self-diagnosed. He had basically you might almost say he had been raised polylingual. Uh, someone who it, it's all English and yet he really did grow up you know with a very in the house very strict enforced you know the King's English I mean you know US version but basically the King's English uh, and, and then was exposed to these other variants including the black vernacular and and learned them as one would learn multiple languages and could you know as we say of people in multiple can speak multiple languages really could code switch could move back and forth from one to another effortlessly. His family is very funny on the theme of the, the sort of Bronx Italian accent that he never really lost, except, you know, taken to Jamaica and he was happy to very quickly start speaking like a native Jamaican and <laughs> drop him in Harlem and he could speak street, you know, black vernacular. So he really just had, a, had an excellent ear for it and it, it's part of the real spawn of these books.
0: So you, you discovered his family. I did. His, his wife <laughs> and his daughter, Jessie, you mentioned her in your article. Um, I'm just curious about what they were like and what what you really learned about him from them.
1: Um, I mean, the short answer to what they were like is just indescribably wonderful. Uh-huh. Uh, and it, it's interesting, you know, if you if one reasonable measure of a human being is, is the family that they build and they create, uh, which isn't to say we can all be held, you know, responsible for our <laughs> right. parents, our children, <laughs> our siblings, we, we certainly cannot, but to the extent that it's even at all a good proxy measure, uh, it, it really just makes me wish even more that I had met him because his, his uh, surviving family members are, were just, um, just truly a pleasure to work with. And of course, as a journalist, anytime you enter into a situation like this, you are mindful that it might be fraught. I really hesitated before reaching out to the family because, you know, I knew I already had a piece I wanted to write. I had this incredible length and he was fine. I had enough autobiographical or sorry, biographical material about William Kelly, you know, not, not a ton, but enough. Uh, no one's ever written a biography of him, but there's bits and pieces here and there I could string together. And then, of course, I had his body of work. And that's five books and that's a lot. And I thought, all right, well, I don't have 40,000 words here. You know, do I really want to, you know, is it worth reaching out to his family to learn a little more about him knowing as one always knows that, you know, you might be opening the can of worms. Family can be really complicated. You know, he had just died earlier in the year. I knew they would be grieving. I also know, you know, you just, you just don't know when you step into the family, uh, what it is you're going to learn. But I was curious enough about him that I decided to reach out, and I wound up going up and meeting them. They still live in Harlem. Um, his, uh, the, the whole family lived uh, in at 125th Street and uh, Fifth Avenue for many, 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 many years, decades. And then towards the end of his life, um, William Kelly had diabetes, and he ultimately lost the leg. and after that amputation, they had to move. They'd been living in a walk-up and they had to move to a kind of first floor apartment he could manage better. His Mm -hmm. widow is still living there. Um, This is uh, on Sugar Hill in Harlem. His daughter lives just, you know, in the neighborhood close by. Uh, So I met them uh, at his widow's house and, you know, they were, um, they were wonderful. They were You know, grieving him, but in the most joyful way you can imagine. People grieving—they really helped bring him to life for me. Shared a lot of stories. What I found perhaps most remarkable—and I hope some incredible biographer is listening to this podcast—because you know, if if you wanted to write the story of William Kelly at great length. Um, you know, anytime, anytime you're writing about a subject, whether at magazine length or certainly at any, you know, at, at book length, to some extent, whether you can do the project at all and certainly how well you can do it, honestly depends on what kind of archival material is available. And needless to say, a real tragedy in our nation is that for African American citizens, the archival record, the historical record, is a mess. You know, not not necessarily mm-hmm. right now, but go even one or two, God knows, three generations back. And, you know, it's just lost. Records weren't kept. They were kept badly. There was, like, official and governmental neglect. They either weren't kept or they were burned. There was so much forced transience that, you know, things were lost between moves. There's just, you know, there's not the wealth of documentation that one would want. And I found this family completely remarkable because going back many generations on both sides, especially in some ways, on on um, on William Kelly's wife's side, uh, but on his side as well, there's just people just write stuff down. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have diaries, they have actual autobiographies written by you know fathers and grandfathers and great uncles. They have a photographic record going back to you know. The 1890s. I mean, it was just incredible. So, uh, so you know, as a as a researcher, I knew I couldn't make use of that much of that material because I'm just you know writing a 5,000 word piece or whatever. But uh, but it was but it was fascinating, and they were um, just really forthcoming with with information and with stories about him.
0: So a couple of quick things before we close. Um, I was also shocked to read in your piece that William Kelly uh, and his wife I, is it Aiki. Did I say her name correctly? Mm-hmm. Um, Decided to become Jewish, but in their own way, as he does everything else.
1: Uh, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> I mean, so so one reason I was very glad that I decided to uh, to reach out to his family and that they invited me into their lives is yes, I would never have known this fact. Um, as best I can tell, it's not particularly documented in the you know kind of I don't want to say paltry, but in but in the thin. Biographical record on William Kelly. I had not encountered that. So when I was sitting there on their couch, you know, <laughs> petting their adorable kitten, and all of a sudden his daughter comes out with, you know, well, when Poppy converted to Judaism, <laughs> you know, I just about <laughs> fell off of the couch. And it was it was this was not something that I that I saw coming. Um, and yes, it was very interesting to me both the conversion itself. Um, that it took place in Jamaica, which is I mean I don't really know where I expect people to convert to Judaism, but somehow that seemed to only <laughs> sort of further the, the unexpectedness of it um, but then yes, it was a very unusual conversion and a very unusual religious life in that it was truly a life of the it was it was a religion of of, of soul and of family and and not uh, a not of community and you know, I think a lot of religion is communitarian and, in fact, sometimes at the expense of being of the soul <laughs> or of the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but there was truly uh, it was truly private unto them to the to the um point of of not uh, not even following the conventional Jewish calendar. You know, these are people who find themselves fasting for Yom Kippur in July or whatever. And <laughs> um, they, they sort of started off on their road, and, and there they are. Um, so it was, yes, it was a very it was very unexpected. Um, by all accounts, absolutely uh, absolutely heartfelt. My, my understanding is that uh, Kelly, who was interested in spiritual and theological matters in general, was was truly a devout Jew and uh, and took it very seriously and um, you know more so with each passing year and, and really did raise his daughters, uh, who were quite young at the time that the family converted, um, as as devout although you know idiosyncratic Jews.
0: my kind of jew so anyway um, (laughs) so um so when you when you think when you think of william kelly and his work um as we talked earlier and as you wrote about where he kind of really he pulled no punches when it comes to the depth of racism in america and he really Mm -hmm. and he really pushed that hard he was a man in some ways ahead of his time understanding the depth of racism in america for white people to hear um, so I'm curious, as you read his words in the in his novels, not as I said, I've only read the one book, but you've read them all now, um, what does he have to say to the 21st century? Why should we be reading William Kelly now? What is he saying to us?
1: I mean, you know, you, you've already nailed it for me. He's telling us what, what, what I think it's impossible to not know as an open-eyed American and, and what nonetheless— um, you know, so many of our compatriots do an incredible job of ignoring, which is that we are a nation founded in, grounded upon a fundamental and absolutely tragic injustice, an injustice that goes, you know, that travels off the map of injustice and into the land of actual iniquity and evil. And he is relentless on this. He's not... Didactic. Uh, he's not. He's not even quite dark because he has such a comedic touch. But he is. He is implacable on the extent to which racism organizes our society. It organizes, you know, how we understand ourselves, how we understand and misunderstand each other, what we have access to, how the day-to-day opportunities for all of us unfold, how. Our day-to-day interactions are shaped, and it just, you know, in in the way that it should be, it is inescapable. this is a, a hackneyed way to put it, but it is. Um, it has the quality of an extra. It it strips away all of the kind of hand waving people like to do about racism and all of the caveating and well, but, well, but, and just shows you, like, no, this is this is actually how white and black america are built together and broken and fused and 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 here is what it is like and you know to my mind in this i mean in this moment look in all moments <laughs> but 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 if it is possible to be living through a particularly acute one i think we are in a moment when there is so much at stake on the question of whether or not we are going to attend to this founding evil and whether it is ever possible for white people in particular to acknowledge it, to look it in the face, to choose to do something about it instead of capitulate to it and benefit from it. And and Kelly is very clear on the fact that this is a white problem you know, this is a white pathology, you know, if, if, if anything is ever going to be done about that, I think it begins with comprehension. And what he was so insistent on was like, oh, let me show you, <laughs> let me, let me show you what it looks like. And, uh, you know, for that reason, I, there are a lot of great reasons to read William Kelly, including he's an incredible writer and he's very funny. And a lot of the stories are really charming and all of this, but, but yes, I think that, um, you know, we live in a moment, although, again, I think all of America is necessarily and definitionally of the moment when we need to understand as white people, as a white person, we need to understand our inheritance of racism and our perpetuation of racism. And that's what he insists on. And it's what he is so good at showing his readers.
0: That was really, really well put. <laughs> oh, you. God.
1: I mean, one never feels <laughs> that way, right? I mean, yeah. one, of the, one of the interesting powers of racism is to, uh, I think render uh, render a lot of things difficult to say and make us inarticulate and mm-hmm. he, William Kelly rises above that. He's incredibly articulate on
0: it. So folks, you need to read A Different Drummer also this piece by Catherine Schulz in The New Yorker that we'll be linking to here on the podcast uh, and some other pieces as well. Um, an amazing uh, piece of writing about an amazing being, human being, William Kelly. And Catherine Schulz, thank you for the work you do and thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast.
1: It was absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me
0: thanks for listening to our podcast this program was produced and edited by calvin perry with assistance from our intern Nora belbidia you can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on itunes or on your favorite podcasting app find us on facebook instagram and twitter by searching for the mark steiner show and please let us know what you think write me at mark steinershow.org we'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast